Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. To let me know what you think of this podcast or to suggest a future guest, please go to the contact page at nathanwhitlock.ca. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book that is not just newish, it's actually brand new. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Susan Musgrave. Susan is the author of 19 books of poetry, numerous works of fiction and nonfiction, and several books for children. She's been the recipient of multiple awards, including the Matt Cohen Award, the BC Book Awards, and Taste Canada Awards. In 2023, she was recognized with the George Woodcock Award for Outstanding Literary Achievement in British Columbia. Susan also teaches poetry at the University of British Columbia's Creative Writing School, where I was lucky enough to be her student twice while completing my MFA degree. I only mention it because it comes up in our conversation. Susan's most recent book of poetry, Exculpatory Lilies, published in 2022 by McClellan and Stewart, was shortlisted for the 2023 Griffin Poetry Prize. Susan and I talk about the literally sensational nature of her life story. Seriously, go to her website, look at the bio page. You won't be disappointed. About the loss of her husband, Stephen Reed, and her daughter, Sophie, which inspired many of the poems in Exculpatory Lilies. And about her dislike of the easy and cliched healing narrative that ends with her starting to write poetry again. Though she is totally doing that. When I was doing some research for this interview, one of the obvious places I went is to your website. I was reading the the biography you, you have on that, mm-hmm. which I will say it reads basically like a novel in summary mm-hmm. form <laughs> to yeah. read that extensive biography. Uh, at the risk of offending you, you've had a sensational life in every sense of the term. And it made me actually want to ask something that I I don't ask anybody else is literally like, what have you been doing this week? Because I'm certain it was something of you know worthy of note. What have you been <laughs> up to this past week? It's funny how you know when I see the, my life written down as in a as on my website, I think, oh, I've done a lot. But when you live with yourself 24/7, life can seem quite boring. <laughs> and I know John Berryman has a line: "Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so." Um, to admit that you're bored. Well, his, his mother always said, if to be bored means you have no inner resources. He says, I admit now I have no inner resources for I'm heavy <laughs> bored. Um, so in retrospect, my life always seems interesting, but at the time I don't enjoy myself. I don't have fun and it seems boring. Isn't that awful? <laughs> That's kind of how it is. And I, I think it's, yeah, when I look back, yesterday I went, I had a, a guest at my guest house, Copper Beach House in Masset, who uh, hired a helicopter at great expense, a helijet, to go out to the lighthouse on Langara Island. And Langara Island is the n- northernmost point of Haida Gwaii. 
used to be called North Island. I don't know why it's changed, but there are a couple of fishing lodges there. And there's this lighthouse that was apparently painted green in the war because everything government had to be green. But there's a light that shines for 30 miles out into the sea. So that seemed an odd thing. So that was an interesting day. So we took 12 of us. We're in a helijet. It cost about $4,000 to go out there for two hours and uh, walked around the lighthouse. So that's something I hadn't done before. Went out, and there's mercury apparently there they, the lights turn in this bowl of mercury so oh wow i know did you uh, get to go inside did you go inside yeah, you the light? To the oh amazing uh, the new ones don't have mercury in them but the old ones do and i in ireland i stay in lighthouses i've stayed in two one on clare island and one um at fanned head in donegal because they they do up lighthouse they put make rooms for where the keepers used to live rent them to guests and they're still working lighthouses so it's very interesting um I don't know why I'm attracted to that kind of thing, but then I thought of Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse, which I read right. years ago. And so that was an unusual day and then cooked dinner for six people. I mean, it's very busy right now because there's so many interesting people. I get these most interesting guests. In fact, I tell them, I wish you'd stop being interesting. <laughs> Can't I have some <laughs> dull guests? Because the interesting people take a lot of your mental energy just to listen yeah. to people and to, wow. Um, and I really do get, quite the crowd here have uh, uh so um summertime it's sort of all a blur in retrospect it'll seem really great and interesting but <laughs> the moment it's like oh how do i get through another day we're also fighting uh in mass at the town where i live and the population is about 1500 we're fighting um our, a, a fuel company that wants to put a, a tank a diesel tank fuel tank farm right kind of in the middle of town on our waterfront so there's huge um and we only found out about it after the fact, you know, but there was no consultation. So I'm very involved in that right now. So writing tons of letters to every ministry you can think of, getting a, trying to get a lawyer on board, um, that sort of thing. So all that's just time consuming. And then last week or the week before, maybe a month ago, I started writing the first poem I've written since my daughter died in September 2021. I hadn't written a word and I figured I might never again. Um, not I've written you know, essays and other things, but poetry, I wasn't going near it. And so I was quite surprised. And now everything I read is kind of feeding that part of me that writes poetry. I, I can I, I can feel it coming again. So that's kind of a positive thing for me because it's always what kept me kind of balanced in life was, was poetry. Always having something to work on. I, I tinker for months on a poem, I go back and right. still one word, still one line I'm working on in this one. But yeah. So, you've you've kind of anticipated some of my my later questions um one of which is related to i think it's the final line in exculpatory lilies which is the empty days are the loveliest only people with desire can be fooled and i have none yeah i i can i can sense in even in talking about having all these people over these wonderfully interesting people and flying in a helicopter that sense of yearning for those empty days <laughs> those lovely empty days yeah yeah um it is the islands are these islands are special uh, well the helicopter took us on a kind of scenic tour we flew over um abandoned village sites yan the village of yan which is you know Haida sites that were where there's still totem poles and it's pretty magical that way and, I, and that's why i like going up in the air because you get to it's a different perspective Mm -hmm. I mean, everything is about perspective, isn't it? And, and I get trapped inside my own brain so much, I forget that there's a world out there. 
right helpful to go out into the world to go to ireland in november was really good to reset my brain in some ways because i had been just sitting home crying for about a year and a half then i read about sinead o'connor yesterday and oh yeah i hadn't remembered that her son died and 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 i've been reading the things she said about that and i went oh boy because i certainly considered i didn't i would never kill myself because i don't i know what it does to people you leave behind i've never been that desperate but I did try and on Sophie's birthday, I tried to um, arrange for assisted suicide in Switzerland, thinking I could say goodbye to everybody and then just, you know, go off. But I'm not, uh, I wasn't considered terminal. So I (laughs) I, I thought that's off my bucket list now, uh, assisted suicide. Um, And I, so I kind of read the thing she said and I went, wow, because, you know, you you talk about losing a child, but there's nothing you can, there's nothing anyone because it's very private, lonely grief. I'm surrounded by women who've also lost children, but we're all alone in the grief because you don't mm-hmm. I don't know their children. They didn't know mine. And that's the, the connection there is so physical and uh, so cellular, I guess, that you feel that you've all the things that Sinead was saying. You know, well, they, I, I wrote down a few things that, that she said, how she was stuck in the bardo and. Just, uh, inter- you know, I thought, I, I don't I don't know if she committed suicide. I suspect that's probably sounds like she had made a lot of attempts. So I don't know yeah. why people, she was so honest. I don't know. I was wondering about death, why people won't be honest about it and say, this is what the person did. I mean, yeah. shame it. and yet, because that's what she was about, was about speaking the truth about things. And so that's a bit... I, I in Sophie's obituary, I I put that she had oatmeal died of an over accidental overdose because if you don't put those things, everybody wonders. You you have to try and interpret. I don't know why we care. For some reason, I think if I read enough obituaries and figure out what people die from, I can avoid it myself. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'm not gonna get gonna you know do this or that to to avoid that type of death if I knew the person. But uh, I think it's all about trying to avoid dying which is not possible suicide ideation but wanting to avoid dying it's all those those kinds of strange contradictions there's so many of them when you're in a state of grief i think yeah so i might go and live in a lighthouse that's another possibility i think what a great life out there especially in the winter with the storms um, oh there would be it would be, uh, it'd be... The, the the best kind of loneliness like the best kind so. of enforced loneliness enforced and it does they do have internet out there because uh, i couldn't live without that because i teach and i need to be online mm-hmm. so i thought well if i have internet then what else do i need but i'm pretty isolated where i am already so that would be another step well that must be part of the problem with having you know interesting friends and in that the people who come to see you they're coming with intention it's not like living in the middle of a city where people are just dropping by yeah. and saying hello and if they're coming to see you, they're coming to see you with that purpose. And it's it has to be everything in those few days. It has to be an intense. Yeah. There's a certain intention and intensity to it yeah. as opposed yeah, to that right. casualness. They're not coming to see me, the guests at Copper Beach House. I mean, some are because they've read my cookbook or but and they always they'd like to they always want to meet the person who runs the guest house, the former owner, David Phillips. Everybody was disappointed if he wasn't there. So there's something about being the owner that people want to meet you. But I do get a lot of people who who come because they've read well even my new book exculpatory lilies because of the griffin prize it got a lot of attention so there are people who who know about that and i've had 
I have quite a few mothers who've lost children to um, overdoses who come and I, I don't charge them. I just <laughs> come and stay. I, I can't right. even begin to. It just seems so. I mean, I, I wish there were so many people who come here for funerals. I wish I could let everybody stay, but uh, I'm not. I have to pay my people who work for me. So, <laughs> but, yeah, but I do have a um, somebody who's coming to spend the winter. She's been running across B.C. or walking or running to raise awareness for safe supply. When it comes to drugs, there's really nothing you can do except hope that people don't start using them. Yeah. I mean, once you've used them, I think your brain really changes. So you never can really be without them. It's almost, I think that's what I watched in my daughter is no matter how many times she tried, she would go back to it. Even if she's happy or she was unhappy, it doesn't really matter. So it creates this need that goes beyond yeah. Oh, yeah. intellect yeah. or understanding yeah. or even yeah. desire. It's just, it's a need. Yeah. It's a fundamental, it's now one yeah. of your fundamental needs. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And it will override some of the other ones for Absolutely. even for like right a love or signs. affection, security. Yeah. No, you need this thing. Yeah, more than love. I, I noticed that I knew that with my husband. Because Sophie was a little girl and he a couple of times when he got addicted and he loved her more than anything. And yet he could walk away for you know, go and stay in a hotel and smoke crack for two days. Uh, you no, know, um, not that he did that a lot, but there were t- there were. Yeah, it was pretty rough. And, so I thought, oh, this is bigger than me, certainly. It's, but it's bigger than love because he, I know how much he cared about Sophie. It's it's awful. I, I, I guess we just need to find a way. To, if, well, I spent 30 years trying to find a way to live with it, um, being kind mostly. But there were times I, I couldn't be because I would flush needles down the toilet thinking that was, just, you know, I, I, I tried everything. And there's really nothing you can do except listen to people and um be there that if, if they want help That's right. what I did. Sophie I'd pay for her rehab every time she went I was actually going to ask you about you know this and about the the, the news about Sinead O'Connor because I, I read something you had uh, said in an interview about how you had a, a an unexpected reaction to Lady Diana Lady Di dying <laughs> I know. and it was kind of baffling because it's not like I don't imagine you have no Ro- royal wedding silverware or plateware in your house and it's it's not like you were following that story all. i have no idea what it is maybe it's the big eyes Sinead had big eyes too <laughs> the baby seals have big eyes <laughs> we, uh there's something just touches you and you it's just a sadness it's not grief the way that i felt grief over Stephen or sophie but it's it's just a sadness that the that Everything, things could be snatched from you so quickly. Your own yeah. life, but it's and and you never. I mean, every day, I'd say pretty much every day, there's somebody I read about now on Facebook or that I know. And especially living on this island, it's very small. Um, I, I know uh, if you, if I don't know the person personally, I know their cousin or their auntie or their mother or father or sister or brother. So you're affected all the time. It's. I wonder if you start to realize like how much you have defined your own life by these people, like they are part of the definition of your life, where maybe you thought before they were gone, they weren't really part of your definition. Exactly. They were just they were just yeah. other people. Yeah. But when they're removed, it's like, well, no, that's that's like words in a paragraph have been have been erased. So now you have to either fill those in or leave the gaps. It's it's some something doesn't make sense anymore. Well, I'm reading this really good book called The Grieving Brain um, about the neuroscience of grieving. Because I okay. after a year and a half, like 
something going on, you know, well, of course, there was Stephen before, and then my mother died too, So, and my brother-in-law. It's been quite a lot of death, but I thought it's not. But Sophie was the worst because she mm. was, well, my baby, really. And um, so anyway, she, she talks about, if you imagine coming downstairs in the morning and your dining room table has st been stolen. And it doesn't make any, the brain is not prepared to have something like a person be there one minute and then be gone. Nothing right. in our experience has programmed the brain to understand this. You have to relearn it. And it's like, okay, your table's missing. So you walk around the space where it was for the first two or three weeks, and then you eventually learn that it's not there. And then she says, it's the same with people. You, you have to relearn that they're in a different dimension. Because I would drive around sort of saying, Sophie, where are you? Where are you? As if, you know, I just had misplaced her. And it, that's right. what the brain thinks. The brain right. thinks you've lost her and you can't find her. So keep looking. And that it really helped me. I thought, OK, I get it now. That's it just isn't my brain isn't making sense. It's not that I'm going I'm crazed with grief. My brain is just it's a pretty logical brain in some ways. And I think, yeah, no, this is not logical that my daughter cannot be here. It's um, it's almost the phantom limb phenomenon. Yes. Like, yeah, it is. Yeah. You get the itches or, you know, yeah. pains and you have In a sore case, arm. The, and, the, 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 yeah, the brokenness, the the missingness. The, yeah, it's a, it's a, and, and I guess we feel it when our parents died. Mom was 93, so I didn't really feel that sadness with her. I felt that she didn't want to be alive anymore. Mm -hmm. And, um, but still, every now I want to tell her about so many things. I think the longer people are dead, too, the more difficult it becomes. It's It's not that just that they die, but they stay dead which is almost worse right that's one thing you're in such shock and then they they keep on being dead <laughs> it's time because even even if it was a difficult relationship there was always this chance of some sort of yeah return to something else a resolution a better period but then once they're gone that that option is gone that that future is gone and then it's people, a, people you didn't haven't even seen for years die but you, you, they were always there they filled a place in your yeah life in your story story of our lives and suddenly your story becomes a bunch of black holes <laughs> oh, <boy>. <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to actually ask you something about uh about your mother and about something she, uh she said to you when you first started publishing books which was who will publish you when you're 40 with wrinkles <laughs> right oh i think about which that is... line all the time it's like my father saying, you're so useless, you couldn't boil an egg. Every time I, and I'm a good cook. I've written a cookbook. Everyone thinks of me as a chef. I'm not. I'm just a cook. But so those are the, the things, those messages from childhood that just don't leave you. Yeah. I, mean, I wish my mom were alive now that I could say, look, I got shortlisted for the Griffin. Although <laughs> that I don't think, I think I found out that she had never been able to do in her life what she wanted to do. Um, You find out often what your why your parents have the attitude towards you if you talk to them about yeah she wanted to be a nurse and she got you know passed with the top of the class all that had a recommendation from lieutenant governor and but she'd um had rheumatic fever as a child so she had a, a heart murmur so she mm -hmm. was out so she said after that i didn't care what happened to me i thought oh that's interesting because i think she saw me as always being able to do what i wanted which was to write and to gad about as she would call it when i went on reading right. tours so, so did she uh, resent you that resent that freedom she that she perceived in you jealous maybe or, yeah. or envious maybe it's yeah more, uh, i mean i think that yeah i remember her coming to some event with me and telling someone oh i should write a book called the other side meaning 
her, her <laughs> perception of me, life with me. Because, I mean, I probably fictionalized a lot of my life. I can't, that's why I don't write a memoir, because I don't know the difference between what I've made up and what really happened to me. Do any of us? That's why people read memoirs and get so upset. That's not the person I knew. <laughs> like their perception yeah. of their own life is very different. Perception's 99% of the flaw, one of my guests said once, which I think is yeah. true. It's like trying to take a photograph of, well, I don't take photographs of sunsets. Many people do, but you just don't capture the whole ambiance in a, well, yeah. I suppose really good photographers do, but nowadays I don't even trust them because I think they add things to photographs and take them out. And sing. Um, But when you're in the middle of it, and when I'm in some place that I love, I didn't take a single picture yesterday. Most people spent their whole time photographing. And I thought, oh, it's like, what's her name who says, not Jermaine Greer, Susan Sontag. People take pictures to say we were here once or pick, you know, wedding pictures. We loved each other once. <laughs> uh, <it's> again, for <laughs> the, <laughs> what? <laughs> to, so we could remember, but you can spend your whole time photographing a place and not be there. I mean, photographing, no. like writing kind of takes you out of the, out of the spot that you are and, and into another place. I yeah. remember being at Niagara Falls, um, years ago with my wife and we were walking around and there was a guy striding along really fast ahead of us just full of purpose and he had a his phone on one of those selfie sticks oh yeah <laughs> and he was just holding it out filming himself and oh, he would yeah. just sort of walk to the edge of the falls click 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 and then walk really oh, yeah. fast to the next spot click 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 and we just watched him go the whole way down the falls doing that click 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 we thought it was almost like he was like setting an alibi for himself for a later crime or something like i was oh, here yeah. i've i've set a record because he's going to have all these photos of his face with the falls behind him but he never actually <laughs> took any time to look at this thing that oh. he had gone all this way for i know i know well that's what bucket lists are about it's not about being immersing yourself in a place it's about checking Just it off checking a box yeah, yeah. culture is so fucked up really it is i i yeah it's it does remind me of something you said you would you were asked some you know writing advice general writing advice and you had said if you're if you're interested I'm paraphrasing but if you're someone who is just interested in having written a book mm. you're probably not on the right track like mm -hmm. you need to actually be engaged with the process it should be the process, process yeah. of writing and the actual writing that and the rest of it it's fine like yeah. publishing a book being on a a major jury a major prize list that's fantastic but it's the process itself that yeah, that it needs is. to bring the the nourishment if you don't like the process you'll always be unhappy because as soon as you have a book out and if you do any there's not all that much publicity for books anymore but the questions i used to get asked is what's your next book about or when's your next <laughs> book yeah, I mean, it, don't, it takes me about 15 years to write a book so it's just like <laughs> wow i don't know what is it <laughs> I might be dead by then. I don't know. You know, it's just, um, we're very product oriented. We want to know about the product. We don't want to hear yes. about the process. But in writing, that's all there is, the product. And I've never really been attached to the product. Even when my first book came out, and that was 1970, I was, other people seemed more excited than I did about it. I went off to Ireland, the west of Ireland and lived in a remote place where I didn't have any access to media didn't even know there was a war going on <laughs> about <laughs> bloody sunday I, I luckily avoided anything nasty um so about not, not writing for so long was that i thought well without that process like what do i have in my life because i've always 
been so involved, engaged in that process of writing, but I don't want to write books just because that's what I'm supposed to do because I've always done it. That's I'd have to want to write something. I mean, comes from a different place, not a place where of expectation, but oh, there this this poem came along and I didn't expect it to. And it it did. Such magic. And I don't know what crushed that. I guess just the weight of grief. Makes me think of another line of yours from an interview where you said, whatever you get criticized for as a young writer, keep doing it. It's probably what you do best. <laughs> yeah, I think Tom Robbins said that. I think yeah. it's quoting him. Yeah. Um, do you think you've followed that? Or do you think you've stuck to that? Or do you think it's it's something that's kind of come in and out in terms of your process, in terms of your own writing? In well, other words, do you recognize the person, the writer that you were first when you wrote Songs of the Sea Witch? Or is well, that a completely... Uh, <laughs> separate person separate person i was thinking about that book this morning for some reason um and then i thought oh, those poems are so skinny compared to what i write now i didn't have any idea about line breaks i mean i didn't know very much i was just lucky that i got published i wouldn't say oh i've been criticized for this i'm going to keep writing this way that i would never be it's not a, that conscious process right. for me but it could be subconscious um i certainly like the idea of not of, of of challenging the status quo to some extent not i'm not outrageously so but just saying what needs to be said and, and not not pretending it's otherwise i guess I, there's a sort of honesty that i expect of myself but i've never been criticized well i might have been i got that a lot with this last book the how raw it was and how brutally honest and i think well i wasn't being brutally honest i was just being that's how i felt so yeah how could I disguise that? There's often this sense with reviewers or critics or, or readers that there is there's more strategy involved. Yeah, that you are yeah. that you are strategizing every yeah. line and everything is almost like branding. Like you yeah, are that's, yeah. That's so far from the truth. You have a target and you're aiming at it, but it often just reveals itself in the end. Yeah. <laughs> or or in the editing. Think have, I think the poem writes us. I don't think we write the poem. I mean, that's I was so delighted when I started writing this and I started another poem just because um, I don't know where it's coming from or what where it's going to go. I kept thinking, oh, I need some sort of focus to, to start writing again. And and then I thought, well, that's never how I've worked, but like, why can't I get out of this? And like I said, I just had to wait. I had to let those feelings of loss uh, just be there as, for as long as they needed to be with that intensity which didn't allow me to do anything else. Mm -hmm. I did. I carried on. But um, not, it's starting to feel like COVID. I don't remember COVID. <laughs> I, I do remember <laughs> being, because I'm still, I'm not really over it, but I'm, I'm, I mean, she's, Sophie isn't the first thing I think about every morning when I wake up now, which is, I've read that that happens. She might be the second thing. And, right. Like, be till noon you know five years from now um but that's always amazing to me that oh i didn't you know or i haven't cried yet today although not far from not far from and i don't have the eagle claw in my gut which is the that's where it really affected me i was called the eagle claw it's like something down in the solar plexus that hurts it feels like it's being pulled um oh like and uh I guess that's what I felt for the longest time. And it's very painful grief, mm. like physically painful. So many years, a lot of poem, my poems, so many from the time she was born about a child that dies. 
And I don't know whether that again is parental fear or it was some sort of prescience. I don't, I, I don't know. Um, both my novels had to do with dead children <laughs> or two last two novels. Right. So, but I think it could just be that it was my, probably the worst. What was it? I just keep seeing this meme. Was it Einstein who said that our worst fear has already happened? Well, mine definitely has, but I, I don't know if it had up until that point or if it was just right. a fear that was, you know, waiting to <laughs> waiting to be embodied by life. Was there any sense that it was your body or your brain or your imagination trying to prepare you, trying to sort of, oh, yeah. the, and then it's when it like, came, it was, yeah. so it would be less of a yeah. tearing. If you want peace, prepare for war. Um, I prepared for war for 20 years and it didn't help. It was worse when yeah. she died. Um, it was, well, it was pretty bad when she was alive because I kept waiting for thinking she was going to die. And even her last text. So here I am, mom, you're alive, daughter. Oh. and uh so i spent a you know if i didn't hear from her for a week i would just it would be hellish and when she was on the street and i'd have there were police that work especially with people come keeping track of them and they'd phone me we haven't seen sophie for a few weeks i go oh i haven't heard from her either and then then i would and so it was that was really an awful thing to live with i think i was pretty in a wretched state for the last especially the last 10 years so i'd if anything, do feel a lot less um, anxious now and probably not as depressed. Not a, yeah, so a lot of the things that I was feeling came out of that, the stress of the situation. They were situational. Before that, there was Stephen, and because 30 years of being married to him, he, he was addicted three times during that period. But, but I just always had that sense that I was trying to save him. And I said to Sophie the last time I saw her, I can't save your life. I've tried so much, but I couldn't, I can't save anybody. Why do I think I can? <laughs> right. For some reason, as a mother and a wife, you think you're supposed to save, or at least I thought I can keep them alive. Love will keep them alive. I'm pretty romantic that way. It doesn't. Not. I'm not into saving anybody anymore. And it must be one of those situations, I mean, where you know that your instinct is to grab or to force something to happen, like going yeah. and saving somebody, but knowing that it's like grabbing something underwater. It'll slip. Yeah. You're going to you're going to guarantee that they will slip away if you oh, yeah. do use too much force. Exactly. Or but they'll then, put their hands around your throat and bring you down. <laughs> yeah. I never quite understand people who write in the middle of crises who feel mm -hmm. like they need to have things going on and that inspires them to go. I always feel like writing is much requires a bit of time. I mean, I relate that to even any kind of therapy people do that it's it's good to talk to somebody but it's not going to happen right then maybe they say something that six years later goes yeah. oh now i see what they were saying now yeah. i can unlock that yeah it's not like you walk out the door going perfect i've solved it no, i figured that no. thing out and yet our but, culture gives that 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 message is everything is instant yes and and if you work through like, this list if you work through yeah, this list yeah. you take the walk you take the medication yeah. you get this yeah. oxygen the, the opposite it's process again and it's a long yeah. process and do you think that's what's happening with you in that in that you're just hitting that period of time the eagle claw has been removed <laughs> thankfully mm -hmm. and now your brain and your imagination is and your creativity is starting to settle to the point where you can actually connect with words, connect with writing, connect with that part of your imagination again. So what is it? Was it Wordsworth who said emotion recollected in tranquility? 
somebody quoted that at the Griffin said that they thought that that's what my poetry was. And I thought, wow, I wouldn't have. (laughs) (laughs) The poems I wrote for Sophie in the book, The Goodness of This World, were written when she was like in 14. No, no, 2014. And she was on the street and I was just that was I had come to the end of what I could take. And I thought I'm I'm really making myself sick here. I have to live. And uh, so I wrote those poems and they helped me. Through some, so they were written a while ago, but I wouldn't say it was emotion recollected. It might seem tranquil more. So now I did start a poem called um, Social Distancing at the Crematorium in uh, mm. in Armstrong, where she was cremated, because that was a sign saying the, there was still COVID happening. And uh, so I, so I was, I'm able to write. And I did write one poem as when I brought her ashes home on the plane called Postscript that's in the book too. And that, that's the last poem I'd written. So that was after she died, but it was, I remember sitting outside the crematorium working on my class because it was my class day, Tuesday. Thinking, and over occurred to me, I could take sick leave. Lots of people were saying, well, why don't you take some time off? But I think I needed that just to, mm-hmm. I needed to, to have the focus of something outside myself and that I could think, you know, focus on. So it's helpful. Yeah. You probably don't remember this, but when Stephen died, it was actually a Tuesday, and I was in your class. I okay. was in that class, and I right. remember you you announcing, "I have to go to the hospital." Yes. And then yes. hours later, the announcement was made, and we all thought the same thing: like, "Oh, I guess she's going to have to go off, and she can't possibly come back." This is, <laughs> and you were back the next week. And I remember the sign stays in emerge S T A Y apostrophe S. I took a picture of it. I think I didn't think he was going to die. That was that was a bit of a shock because he drove mm-hmm. himself to the hospital. Yeah, same thing. So that summer, I remember you shared a picture of the casket and the the lock was broken on the ferry. Yeah, well, no, the lock. You... I, I lost the key. We had to cut it with bolt right. cuts. And you said that's him escaping. That's, that's <laughs> him releasing himself. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And then when I got to the crematorium, it was horrendous because this woman came out smoking a cigarette and bouffant hair style, this kind of funny pink dress. And she said, that's not going to fit in our oven. I mean, that's just the wrong side. You know, whoever built that. I said, next time. And then eventually she said to me, next time, tell them to make it smaller. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. It it was so absurd. And uh, I think they probably took him out of that box and put him in one one of the ones they cremate people in. Sophie Mm -hmm. was a cardboard thing because having burned, cremated two people, I think. And my mom was, we had a coffin. Same thing. It was way too big. They gave us the wrong dimensions. But luckily their retort or whatever it's called was was big enough for it. (laughs) So strange. I mean... Oh, I don't like cremation. I don't wish there was something else. There are getting to be newer things. But I'm not sure. It's, it seems so final because if you have their form still somewhere, I think you could bring them back. I, the, my right. last poem, the poem that I just finished about Stephen's socks, because he left me a drawer full of socks and I've been wearing them because he always bought really good socks. They're starting to get holes in them. So the last line is um, something about... Um, you can come back now anytime, no questions asked. <laughs> that's uh, that's the end of the poem. <laughs> it's about, <laughs> about, about all the things that are leading up to him, or him being gone for five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I got that last line first. It just came to me, I think, probably on the anniversary of his death. Enough is enough. <laughs> come home. <laughs> Your slippers are here. <laughs>
I want to ask you a little bit about the 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 whole process of the the Griffin and and being on that shortlist and knowing what it's about and knowing what those poems are connected to and you weren't you weren't able to write yet and you weren't sure you were you would ever do it again right well Tom was... Power said to me so what started you writing again and I said I haven't <laughs> silence because everybody want I realize the story that people want is that I'm writing again like the Times yes. called did this big piece in the Islander and uh, the one in the Globe was that that Sophie's death had stopped my pen. That was that was it, on the first anniversary of her death. I ha happened to have Marcus Gee staying staying with me, and his and I didn't know he was the person covering the opi opioid cri crisis for the Globe and and talking to so so interesting. So he did the first time I kind of talked about it publicly, and it was a year. Another woman from the Times Columns did this interview just after Sophie died, and then did one and one last time I was in Victoria, and I. I talked about some image, you know, I'd started the poem that I just, I'm still working on. So that, of course, the focus was that, you know, writing again, I think it's like, <laughs> makes a better story if there's a, something to contrast with. I thought, wow, yeah. And it was like a five-page spread in the Islander. It's just like kind of a small section of the paper, but so funny that they needed something to turn the story around so it wasn't just depressing although I don't that, see that, that healing that's that healing, healing yeah, I know. Chapter. Is, yeah we want the upbeat part it's, oh there's hope <laughs> there's <laughs> light the end of the tunnel it is not the light of the oncoming train <laughs> it makes me think of the, the the actual the first writer that i interviewed for this podcast um an auto writer named julius lalonde who had written a a memoir uh, about being stalked by a by a partner and and a lot of the while she was working as an activist for you know these very causes and her book is called resilience is futile and of course she won an award for it and it was the award said resistance is futile but it's very important that it was resilience but that was, that was her whole point is she was bringing that when she brought that manuscript to some agents and to some publishers they really wanted it to be you went through this awful time yes and now you're a stronger person everything's going yep. great and she was like no 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 that's that's a lie that's a lie you're you're telling people wow and resilience is futile like you can't base everything around like you'll just be strong and you'll get through it and you'll you'll power through this stuff some things damage us and yeah. and you stay damaged and yeah it's not as fun to say that it's not as no, convenient it's not but... as sexy to say that yeah. I, i'm one person like I, when i just thought i i could not go i wasn't I couldn't bear it. I, I was bearing the unbearable. There's a book called that. And that's what, uh, and, and, and everybody said, Oh, you'll, you know, it'll just take time. All the things, the, the, the yeah. duck build platitudes. And then one person said to me, maybe you can't bear it. Maybe, maybe you can't, or you don't want to, or you aren't able to. And I thought, Oh, thank you for saying that. Cause it made me realize I wasn't going to die. I thought, no, fuck them. I'm going to, I'm going to live, but I, I, I might not live with it's going to have a happy ending. It's going to turn around and I'm going to. Yeah, I can't bear it. Although you, you do. But, you know, it's like I don't want to be told that time will heal. I mean, I, all the cliches, of course, come true or the, don't heal, but change. Things change. But yeah. um, when you're in that state, there's really nothing you can say to somebody. That's what that's the problem is. Try to avoid saying things like that. Like time, It's a matter <laughs> in five years. Won't be the first thing you think about in the morning because it might be forever. You don't know. It's yeah. different that way. And also what healing could be is just sort of nerve endings 
becoming yeah. numb. They're dying out or becoming <laughs> numb. It's not exactly yeah. like they're getting right. better. They just yeah. don't respond anymore. Those those parts of your psyche just don't. They've, they've died. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But that's very interesting what you say about the, the, her book. And we want, it's what the media needs to have a, cir a circular story that doesn't just go nowhere. We want resolution. We look mm -hmm. for that. We need a resolution. It doesn't have to be terribly, but usually positive. It's but a change. The person has altered and become better or, you know, has more insight or can help other people. Or But it, sometimes... There isn't that, but that's think too hard for people to talk about. How to, to how, where do they, how do they slot that in somewhere then? If if there isn't an, an ending that's, you can live with. It's, it's hard to find point pointfulness in things. I mean, uh, and then I had this wonderful Buddhist psychiatrist Shabi Larazbi who talked about point pointless lamenting, which is what I do a lot of. And I always think about that when I start to lament. It's totally pointless. So why bother? Um, yeah, and there are things I, I catch. I've got a little Buddhist cheat sheet that I can use when when I start going down into the place of of sorrow, and it's the very simple, the simplest techniques of, of you know breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out four times, and your brain is so fickle. It just it goes, mm. oh yeah, oh I'm supposed to be making strawberry jam today. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> instead of spending the next hour crying over Sophie, my it just is such a simple thing. It was in one of Thich Nhat Hans books about just don't let it don't let yourself go into that place. It's not that you should. I mean, I guess I've done it enough. I, if I'd done that at first, I would have thought, oh, no, I, I'm really repressing some grief. But at this point, I think I can do that and still feel it, but not have to indulge myself in, in weeping for an hour and a half. It's so exhausting. What I actually think will be happening is that in 50 to 100 years, people will be gathering and taking helicopter tours to lighthouses that you have stayed in <laughs> and they'll be like looking at your book that's no. the worst part is not having control um you know over like, okay what if you know when i die my papers i went my archive is at mcmaster so this should be sent there and all these family photographs but what if someone doesn't do that i mean to let go of that i spent the last two years selling things on the buy and sell is it's just kind of because my daughter charlotte's a minimalist and she she'll be less every time i sell something i think she'll be less mad at me when when i die for having less fewer things because <laughs> <laughs> i collect i have collected my whole life wherever i've gone but that's uh, i do think about that it, i'm still trying to control everything from the grave that i'm not in yet <laughs> 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 making a contingency plan <laughs> what happened next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.